Would you join me in the words of the old Methodist hymn written by Charles Tinley? We shall overcome. Can we just sing it a cappella together? We shall overcome. We shall overcome. We shall overcome someday. Oh, deep in my heart, I do believe we shall peace. We shall live in peace. We shall live in peace. We shall live in peace. On the second Sunday of Lent, where the Prince of Peace is confronted with violence. We're in the Gospel of Luke, it's chapter 13, and it's verse 31. And Jesus is up north in Galilee doing the work of the Messiah, sharing the good news. Listen to the text, verse 31. Just then, some Pharisees came up and said, Run for your life. Herod's got your number. He's out to kill you. Read with me Jesus' response. Jesus said, tell that fox that I have no time for him right now. Today and tomorrow, I'm busy clearing out all the demons and healing the sick. The third day, I'm wrapping things up. Wow. Today... I want to wrestle with this question. What is a follower of Jesus to do in a time of war? After worship last week, a couple of you stopped me and said, I, I appreciated your sermon today, but if you, were in, if you were in Ukraine, if you were in Kyiv, what would you preach? It's been a haunting question this week. As I wrote the sermon, at one point, Kathy said, I don't think you should preach that. <laughs> I have a confession to make. I, I have romanticized war 
most of my life. As a child, we played war in the fields behind my house. I have an obsession, my children would say, with what I call the wars of good and evil, the Revolutionary War, the Civil War, the World War II. I have this fascination with war where it seems like good and evil, the lines are clear. I know it's never that simple. We tend to honor the good guys and gals that put their lives on the lines to protect freedom. I mean, we're proud of those in our, our family and we're proud of those who are in Ukraine fighting as David against Goliath. We're proud every time there's a little insurgency that pushes a back against what we see as oppression. Perhaps we should confess that we live in a time where we believe peace is only achieved by strength. Is that the gospel? Matthew chapter 20, verse 25 through 28. Jesus is teaching. Jesus said, you've observed how godless rulers throw their weight around. How quickly a little power goes to their heads. It's not going to be that way with you. Whoever wants to be great must become a servant. Whoever wants to be first among you must be your slave. That is what the Son of Man has done. He came to serve and not be served. He came to give his life in exchange for the many who are held hostage. I confess as I watch this war unfold in Ukraine that I, I put it through the good and evil filter from where we sit the Ukrainians are the good guys and the Russians are the bad guys. Putin is the bad guy. What is a follower of Jesus to do? What is a follower of Jesus to believe in the midst of war? Is there anything such as a just war? Catholic priest and author John Deere, forgive his parents for that name, writes these words. For its first three centuries, Christianity required, required the practice of active nonviolence as taught by Jesus for 300 years. Early Christians refused to serve in Rome's armies or kill in its wars. All that changed in 313 when Emperor Constantine legalized Christianity and established it as the official religion of the empire. In effect, he threw out the commandment to love one's enemies and turned to the pagan Cicero to justify Christian violence, sowing the seeds for a so-called just war theory. During the 17th century since, Christians have waged war, they've led crusades, they've burned women at the stake, persecuted Jews and Muslims, kept slaves, run concentration camps, prayed for successful bombing raids, built and used nuclear weapons. Jesus' teachings of nonviolence have rarely been discussed, much less implemented. What is a follower of Jesus to believe in the midst of war? 
We go back to Jesus' words in the Gospel of Luke on the Sermon on the Plain, chapter 6, verse 27. Jesus puts it like, this is what I say to all who will listen to me. Love your enemies and be good to everyone who hates you. And we love that as a bumper sticker. The truth is we as Americans for the most part believe there's an asterisk there. There has to be. You can't love your enemies in the midst of war. You can't love your enemies when they bomb the hospital. You can't love your enemies when they shoot the innocent. You must defend yourself. You must protect your freedoms. In other words, we really believe you must kill or be killed. Brian, Brian Zahn, who's a pastor, writes in his book, A Farewell to Mars. Mars is the god of war. He writes, for 17 centuries, Christianity has offered a gospel where we can accept Jesus as our personal savior while largely ignoring his ideas about peace and violence in human society. He goes on to say, we've embraced a privatized gospel, a postmodern gospel that stresses Jesus dying on the cross for our sin, but at the same time ignores all of his political ideas. Wow, that leaves us running the world the way the world's always been run, by the sword. Love your enemy? I mean, if at best you and I probably are praying the challenging psalms and the lamentations that we have in the scripture. Like Jesus, we pull out Psalm 21 in times like this. My God, my God, why? Why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? So far from the words of my groaning. There's many to choose from. Psalm 106, excuse me, 109 verse six. God, appoint someone evil to oppose my enemy. Let my accusers stand at their right hand. When they are tired, let them be found guilty. May their prayers condemn them. May their days be few. May another take their place of leadership. May their children be parentless and their spouse a widow. May their children be wandering beggars. May they be driven from their ruined homes. May a creditor seize all that they have. May strangers plunder the fruits of their labor. May no one extend kindness to them or take pity on their parentless children. Reverend Melissa Floor Baxter in her book, How to Have an Enemy, Righteous Anger and the Work of Peace, she writes, the Psalms of rage remind us that somehow in, in spite of absolute defeat, someone dared to say out loud that the world is not as it should be. Thank God we have the call of Jesus to love our enemy. Thank God we have the Psalms and the lamentations of God, where are you? So here we are. 20 centuries down the road wrestling with this conflict. I mean, we, we love Jesus. I mean, we've shown up in the midst of a pandemic, but the truth is we do not believe in his unsettling ideas. I mean, we're skeptical. Can anyone really love their enemy? I mean, I can hear you now. Pastor, they're, they're bombing hospitals. They're blowing up schools. They're shooting civilians. They're killing children. 
It's kill or be killed. Again, Reverend Melissa Floor Baxter writes, in Christianity, we do not resolve enmity by destroying our foes or finding a middle ground with them. Instead, Jesus ushers a different system, a new way of living that challenges the order of power itself. Love your enemy. I mean, here's the struggle. In the midst of this, we may want to say love your enemy. We may work for love your enemy, but we confess every time the Ukrainians have a little victory, we celebrate as if David has slayed Goliath. I've spent a lot of time this week repenting. I mean, I would tell you I believe in Jesus and this peaceable kingdom that it's the hope of the world. I would tell you I believe Christianity is a way of discovery, discovery of God's grace and love and mercy and forgiveness and perhaps today we add in God's justice. But I'm repenting. I'm relearning. I'm seeking to be a faithful follower of the Prince of Peace. Perhaps we all must repent. Perhaps we must all relearn to be faithful followers. What is Jesus' response to violence? I mean, every now and then I'll be meeting with a, a, a young parent in my office and they're parenting two or three children at one time and they're struggling to make life work and they'll, they'll say, what does the scripture say about this? And I'll say, you know what? Jesus never was a parent of three kids. <laughs> Jesus did not speak to this. You're off the hook. But what did Jesus do in the midst of violence? We must remember when Jesus was born, violence raised its head immediately, killed a child. Jesus' mom and dad had to flee as refugees into Egypt. They had to wait to word that it's safe to come back, to come back to a country occupied by Roman oppressors. I mean, they knew they were not free. And Jesus, in the midst of a, I mean, Jerusalem had been taken over by Rome 60 years before Jesus was born. Jesus knew oppression. He sees his oppressor daily, and he does mount an insurgency of love. I mean, go back to his statement in Luke chapter 6, verse 27. I say to you, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who hurt you. If someone slaps you on one cheek, offer the other cheek also. If someone demands your coat, give them your shirt as well. Give to anyone who asks. And when things are taken away from you, don't try to get them back. Do to others as you would have them do to you. This is a call to end violence. It's a radical call. It's a call that you and I can barely hear in a nation that believes the only way to end violence is to increase the budget. We've been taught perhaps this is a passive Christian nonviolence, turn the other cheek. But pay attention to what Jesus is doing in the moment. To an oppressed people, Jesus isn't saying, he's not saying let them walk all over you. 
He's not saying you have no rights. To an oppressed people, Jesus says, turn the other cheek. At his time, by striking someone deemed of a lower class with the back of the hand was a way to assert dominance, authority. If the person turned the other cheek, there was a dilemma. You can't slap them with your backhand from the left side. That, you can't use your left hand. It's your, it's your potty hand. You can't do that. The other alternative is to slap them with an open hand, in other words, or to punch the person, which means we're equals. Jesus says, when they take your coat, give them your shirt. Stand boldly in your nakedness. Because in Jesus' day, it was the one observing nakedness that was embarrassed and ashamed, not the one who was naked. He says, look, they take your coat, make them observe all of you. If we go to Matthew's teaching, Matthew adds, if they take you and ask you to carry their pack for a mile, carry it two miles. The Roman law demands a mile and only a mile. You carry it two. Why? So the oppressor has to chase you down and say, stop. You have power, Jesus says. Nonviolent power. Let's go to the end of the story. The Gospel of Luke, Jesus is at the sermon, has, has preached the Sermon on the Mount. He's on the Mount of Olives. He's had the Last Supper. They are coming down the Mount of Olives, and Judas appears. And he kisses him, and Jesus says that famous line, Judas, are you betraying me with a kiss? And other followers immediately ask, Lord, should we strike with our swords? Without waiting for an answer immediately. They draw their swords. They cut off the ear of the high priest striking him. And Jesus replies to their question, should we take our swords? Get them. No. No. When Jesus is confronted with violence, his response is no more of this. Violence cannot tolerate the presence of one who owes it nothing. You've seen the pictures of the crowd standing in front of a tank. Hear the words of President Dwight D. Eisenhower. Every gun that is made, every warship launched, every rocket fired signifies in the final sense a theft. A theft from those who hunger and are not fed, from those who are cold and not clothed. The world in arms is not spending money alone. It's spending the sweat of its laborers, the genius of its scientists, the hopes of its children. This is not the way of life at all in any true sense. Under the clouds of war, it's humanity hanging on a cross of iron. Wow. Christianity teaches us that war's a legitimate shaping of the world died on the cross. On the cross, we discover a God who would rather die than kill his enemy. We forget this, even though we believe in Jesus. The truth is we believe in war even more. The Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. from his jail cell wrote, to 
to our most bitter opponents, we say, we shall match your capacity to to inflict suffering by our capacity to endure suffering. We shall meet your physical force with soul force. Do to us what you will, and we shall continue to love you. We cannot in all good conscience obey your unjust laws because non-cooperation with evil is as much a moral obligation as is cooperation with good. Throw us in jail and we shall still love you. Bomb our homes, threaten our children and we shall still love you. Send your hooded perpetrators of violence into our community at the midnight hour. Beat us and leave us half dead and we shall still love you. Be assured of this, we will wear you down by our capacity to suffer. And one day, we shall win freedom. But not only for ourselves. We we shall so appeal to your heart and your conscience that we shall win you in the process. And our victory will be a double victory. Wow. This is the Jesus ethic. Our text today said, just then some Pharisees came to Jesus and said, run for your life. Herod's got your number. He's going to kill you. And Jesus said, tell that old fox, I don't have time for this. Today and tomorrow, I'm doing gospel work. I'm cleaning out the demons. I'm healing the sick. And on the third day, I'm wrapping things up. Jesus deals with violence by serving others, by, by loving his enemy, by healing others, by doing the nonviolent work of God. What's a Christian to do in a time of war? Tell that old fox Putin, we don't have time for him. Today and tomorrow, we're busy chasing out demons. We're, we're uh, the demons of hate as we support our trans and LGBTQ friends and family, as we feed the hungry, as we work to end the pandemic, and as we support any of the people fleeing from war in Ukraine. This is gospel work. Now, this is hard. It's overwhelming. <laughs> How do we work for peace? Here's the action steps. Work for peace. Where do you, where do I need to build a bridge? Peace starts right where we are, in our families, in our communities, in our organizations, right where we are. Now this week, a friend of mine from, uh, from seminary called me. My seminary has taken a couple steps, we would say maybe many steps to the right theologically since I left. And one of my friends called me and called me out. Why is your name still associated with that school? Why are you still teaching there? And he added, what the uh, place of eternity, what the hell are you doing there? And he kind of got me fired up a little bit. For a minute I thought, yeah, what am I doing there? If we walk away from everybody we disagree with, how will the conversation ever change? Sometimes we stand in disagreement. You may be in total disagreement with me today. 
Sometimes we stand in disagreement and go, you know what, I love you anyway, but let's continue the conversation. Where do you need to build a bridge? Second, work for peace. I love that Jesus, when they say, look, they're coming to kill you, he goes, look, I'm feeding the hungry, I'm casting out demons, I'm healing the sick. I don't have time for that. Perhaps our work in a time of war is just that, feed the hungry, cast out the demons of prejudice, to do the work of the gospel right where we are. Have you found your place of service? And then work for peace. It does mean that we will need to give. I invite you to give through the church to support these people who've lost their home, who've walked to freedom, who've left loved ones on the front lines, who've buried their children. We will have to help rebuild the nation. We will have to help support a nation in exile. We can be the hands and feet of Jesus. Pray with me. God, we have been so enculturated into a belief that war can be put off with bigger budgets and bigger munitions. It's hard for us to even consider what it means to love our enemy. We have romanticized the good in the midst of war. Would you meet us right where we are and help us to take a step of peace? Whatever small step we can take, you love us right where we are and you call us to be your people. Thank God that we know you as the Prince of Peace. May we learn to live in your shadow. It's in Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen.